David Solomon. Podcasts on topics ranging from Jewish history and the Bible to Jewish mysticism, philosophy and thought. To find out about David's talks, books and more, visit davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. It's a great honour, obviously, to come back here every time and see some familiar faces. Uh, to start a new series. This is a three-part series on a topic that I have spoken on only in the greatest of overview senses. Uh, I've covered it in very, very broad terms. But I wanted, and I've wanted for a while, to do an in-depth course on it. But I have to tell you from the start that... This period is complex. It's very challenging for several reasons. You see, some periods are complex and we know a lot about them. And some periods we just don't know about. But this one we both don't know about. But the little that we do know tells us it's complex. What I'm going to present to you, therefore, it's a bit like it's a bit like cosmology and you know astronomy, when we don't really know what's out there, but the most that we can say is what we do know about what is out there. So what I'm going to talk to you, particularly tonight, in this uh, in this kind of introductory uh, talk to this topic, is I'm going to present more or less what we know. And let me just clarify what it is that we are talking about. And this is called the Gaonic period. I'm not going to just be talking about the Gaonim, although they are a defining feature of the Gaonic period, and we'll obviously be making considerable mention of them. But I want us to be aware that it's really dealing with what we're going to call the Gaonic period in Jewish history. And the Gaonic period, and I'll draw the full line just to start with, the full line of Jewish history so that we are completely aware of what's going on. So there's Jewish history, a line of Jewish history of 4,000 years with 500 year gaps. Yes? And every 500 years is like a phase in Jewish history. We didn't make that up. That's how it emerges from Jewish history. We seem to go through a different kind of key spiritual project which defines each discrete 500-year block. And as it happens, those 500-year blocks seem to coincide very neatly with the secular counting of the world. There are mystical reasons for that, and I've spoken about that before. So let's look at where the Geonim is, and let's just bring this audience a little bit up to, um, you know... Yeah, 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 just make sure everybody's awake. So... Without calling out, who would be able to draw a circle around the particular 500-year period that we would call the Second Temple? Put your hand up if you could do that. Okay. Put your hand up if you have no idea when that would be. Excellent. Put up your hand if you're not sure. Okay, very good. 
Very good. Oh, you did two. You did you know and you're not sure. All right. So just, I, I, I don't want this to take up too much time, but this is important that we contextualize what we're going to be talking about. So the second temple period, in very, very broad terms, is this. Is that what you would have said? And what's this next 500-year phase called? Don't call out, please. Just tell me if you know. Put your hand up if you could tell me what it is. What's the next 500-year phase of Jewish history called after the Second Temple is? Absolutely. So this is a period of Jewish history here. Well, since he's brought me colours, we may as well use them. No, I'm not going to use the green just yet. I'll use the orange. This is what we call the Talmudic that, of course, produced two Talmuds, a Jerusalem or Palestinian Talmud, and importantly, a Babylonian Talmud. They're both important, but the dominant one became the Babylonian Talmud, which was more or less finished as a project defining not just Judaism, but pretty much the whole spectrum of Jewish life. And that is more or less sealed as an ongoing developing document and project around about the year 500. Yep. And it is round about the year 500, pretty much just after the sealing of the Talmud, is when the period that we're going to talk about for the next three weeks commences. What I'm going to be talking about is this 500-year phase here, which we call, and if you didn't know this, you'd be pretty not switched on because it's actually the title of this series, which we call the Gaonic period. Now, if you don't know what that means, that's fine. You certainly will by the end of this evening, if not by the, in the next couple of weeks. But we call this period the Gaonic period. And so I'm going to be starting when I open now, in a couple of minutes or in one minute, talking about this period. That's where we're going to enter. Everybody follow that? So what I'm now going to do is wipe that off. Oh, don't, don't. Yes, I must. <laughs> and instead of zooming in on a line that's going to go from 500 to 1,000, because I think most of you would be, oh, most of us would be able to hold that in our head, I'm only going to be talking tonight about the first 200 years. So from around 500 to 700 of the period, what that enables us to do is lay the groundwork for the events and personalities and issues, historical, that are going to come in the next couple of weeks. But even just doing that 200-year period, which I reckon to a lot of people would be rather obscure, 500 to 700 CE in Jewish history, he's going to be up and down in five minutes. There's not much to say about that. But in fact... I'm going to really struggle to contain in tonight's talk what those two centuries are about. So the age of the Tanaim and the Amoraim are two subsets of the Talmudic. So the Tanaim goes till about 200. The Talmudic as a whole go from 0 to 500. The first 200 years would be the Tanaim. The second 300 years would be the Amoraim. 
and they comprise the Talmud, the Mishnah and the Gemara. But that's just finished. That project is just finished, and now we're in the year 500. So rather than draw a line showing you 500 to 700, instead it's going to be much more useful for us to draw a map. We need to draw a map. We cannot do this without a map. And I apologise to people listening to this and archaeologists of the future, but there is, we're going to do a map. This, of course, is the Mediterranean. This is going to be Spain. All right? North Africa is actually going to come like that. This is the land of Israel. That's how we orient ourselves here. This is Egypt, and that's North Africa. Here we've got Italy, Greece, Turkey. All right? Up here we're going to have Germany, France, and England. All right? No real complaints about... I mean, complaints, yes, but no, no, no real problems there, okay? At the same time, now, when we open this up in around the year 500, and I'm going to be talking about what was, we kind of think of in terms of, there's this expression, the known world, the known world, which really is quite offensive when you think about the history of this period, because what they were doing in China at this time and what they were doing in India defied the imagination of most people living in the world we're going to talk about. But there is this concept of the known world, the concept of the familiar world, and let's define that, and I always have defined that, <coughs> as basically the world in which Jews were living, since we're doing Jewish history. We can look at China, but we're not really getting too involved in Chinese history right now. We're in Jewish history, let's look at where Jews are living. The most important thing to understand about this world of 500 is that it has fundamentally three major geopolitical domains. And those domains are much more than just political. They're also religious. They are cultural. Entirely different outlooks were developing in these three fundamental domains just within the world that Jews are living in. On the one hand, the first one we'd probably want to look at to make sense of this is the one in the middle as a starting point. And that is incorporating pretty much, I'll outline it in red, but that's basically looking something like that. It is an empire. It is a very big empire and a very powerful empire called Byzantium. It is, that's the fancy name for the Eastern Roman Empire. It is Christian. It's very from Christian as well. It's not like laid-back Norwegian Christian. It's very, no offense Norwegians, but the Byzantines were a little less relaxed. 
That is what remained of what used to be the Roman Empire. Because the Western Roman Empire is in the Dark Ages. They are in a bit of a historical boch. And there's not a lot going on. There's a few pagan tribes running around in the slow process of becoming Christians. But it's not happening overnight. We are still at least two and a half centuries away from the rise of the empire of the Franks that is going to come up in the 8th and ninth centuries and become a very powerful cohesive force in Europe, in Western Europe. But for now, there's really not much to speak of. There are a few Jews living in some of those places, but we don't have a lot of records of organised communal life. We know there were Jews in some of those parts at that time, but they haven't left us a lot about what was going on with them. And there are some archaeological discoveries along those lines, some mikvahs, some shuls, but nothing really that we can really hold on to what was happening. Certainly not like the later phases of European life that start, say, from the 11th century in Germany onwards. This is still very, very early. Most people living in these parts of the world would never have encountered or maybe even heard of a Jew. Except, except the ones who were becoming Christians. Except the big one. Well, except the big one. Except the big one. Thank you. <laughs> because, thank you. We still think of this as Christian to a large extent because the big one is sitting in Rome. He is the patriarch of the Western Church. He is the Pope. And he is in charge of the Holy Roman Church, which is still, at this stage, in communion with the patriarch in Constantinople, the head of the, and the Byzantine Emperor, the heads of the Byzantine Church. Everybody follow? That's very good. That's one of the best uh, amendments I've ever had. That's excellent. Because I would have been annoyed if I'd... I, I would have come back to it anyway because I know what I'm going to talk about. But I'm really pleased you pointed that out there. And then we have a massive third domain. And that, of course, is the huge complex Sassanid Empire of Persia with its own rulers and emperors and all sorts of unimaginable things going on. So what's Sassanid? Sassanid. S-A-S-S-A-N-I-D. Approximately. It, does it mean it started as the Sassanid Empire several hundred years earlier? It's, a, it's more than a dynasty. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an empire. It's, it contains several dynasties within it. But yes, it's the one hegemonic rule, which is called the Sassanids. They would have referred to themselves as the Sassanids. The main religion across this Persian-controlled, Iranian-controlled sphere of influence and remember that the Sassanid Empire is one of the empires to which contemporary Iran likes to liken itself. 
It is a big glory days for Persia. This is, do not get confused, this is not the Persia of Cyrus of a thousand years before. This is Sassanid Persia. And the main religion is what? Zoroastrianism. Well, <laughs> the Zoroastrianism that had been the dominant form, because Zoroastrianism itself, like Christianity, complex set of ideas, complex religion, you're not going to necessarily know from meeting a Zoroastrian what exactly he believes. But the dominant form of Zoroastrianism at this time actually was closer to a kind of monotheism. But the problem is, is that their one supreme God was time. And time didn't really care. The infinite time-space, actually, is a more correct understanding of it. And the infinite time-space is the ultimate God, but it doesn't really get involved in thinking about creation at all. It's got other things on its mind. So therefore, there was a dualism of actively engaged gods, one of which was... Well, you know, they say, but nevertheless, Ahura Mazda, and who was like the force of light, the force of wisdom, and its opposite, who was the force of death and darkness and so on. And there's this fundamental dualistic battle, and humanity is effectively the battleground. These are big Zoroastrian ideas, they're into fire worship. They don't bury their dead. They leave them outside for vultures to pick them clean in special towers. These are serious, hardcore religion. But there is another domain in which Jews are living that is not fitting into either of these three. And just before I say that, let me say, because I got distracted, so let me just say in terms of the Sassanid Empire that, of course... Where is the largest concentration and most central cultural communal life of world Jewry at this point? In Babylonia, in what is today Iraq. In which of these domains did that fall? In the Sassanid Empire. Who has control of the land of Israel? The Byzantine Empire. And just to make sure we're still awake, which of these empires is fighting more wars than the others? The Byzantine. Because they are in the middle. They've got wars over here. They've got wars over here with the Slavs. And they've got war here with the Persians. In fact, they've got war everywhere. But before I look in a little bit more detail at those domains of Byzantium and Persia, because everything up tonight is really very dependent on our understanding of the complex set of relations and wars that happen between Byzantium and the Sassanid Empire, I want to talk about another domain where Jews are living that is not within this framework. Do you know where that is? Arabia. Unbelievable. He said it. Arabia. Very few people know 
And in fact, even historians haven't really been too clued up on this until recently because it's only in the last decade that our knowledge of archaeological evidences to back this up, we knew about it from various textual evidences and words by word of mouth, like rumours passed down through historical sources. But now we're finding physical evidence of the fact that really, in Arabia, Saudi Arabia was effectively ruled by a Jewish kingdom that was based, called the Kingdom of Himyar, that was based in Yemen. But by around about this time, around about the year 500, their network of control really extended over most of Saudi Arabia. Have you ever asked yourself, and had been by the way, had been a Jewish kingdom since the end of the 4th century, when the kings of the kingdom of Himyar converted to Judaism in around about the year 380. So we're now a century and a half beyond that, by the time we get to around 520, and that Jewish kingdom, based in Yemen, now controls most of Saudi Arabia. Have you ever asked yourself, have you ever asked yourself, how is it that Islam is based on so much Jewish stuff? Have you ever asked yourself that? Some people say, oh, well, you know, they're Arabs and they're Jews, Semites, same yet. No! No, that doesn't, that doesn't answer it at all. There's no reason why pagan Arabs living in this part of the world, if they were to develop a revealed religion, should be in any way have anything to do with Abrahamic faiths. How is it that there was this massive background that a religion that was effectively an extension of the Jewish story suddenly took hold throughout this whole area, it's because this whole area had already been living under the influence of a Jewish kingdom for 200 years that even referred to God by names like Rahman. Many of the aspects of Islam that you will see clearly emerge from this period. And by around 520, the kingdom of Himyar had its most famous and basically its last, not basically, its last king called Vunawas. Spelt, because I know some of you like to spell this. I'll give out some notes at the end. It'll be on there. Vunawas. His real name was Yosef. Of course. Vunawas became king and didn't like what he was hearing about how Jews were being treated in the Byzantine Empire. So he decided to make it his personal mission to go around massacring Christians. He thought that was his job as a good Jewish boy. He's not the first and he's not the last. Now, some people might be very quick to say, well, you know, the kingdom of the Himyars, you know, like, 
maybe they had some serious kind of reform notion of Judaism going on there and we don't really know what exactly they believe. We know they were Jewish. We know that they produced Hebrew insignia. We know they produced coins with Jewish iconography. We know that they, they, they supported uh, Jewish communities in various places. We know they fought wars on behalf of Jews and so on. So we know they were Jews. But they may, at the end of the day, not have been quite of the same sort of outlook as the rest of the Jewish world, shall we say. They are a grafting. But there were a lot of Jews living throughout Arabia. However, these particular massacres, and you can look into them in detail, I'm not going to go into them now, they're very gruesome, they're very unpleasant, they're not one of the greatest things on the record of Jewish history, and naturally left the Christian kingdoms here no choice but to attempt to end the kingdom of Himyar, but it wasn't actually anyone in Europe or here that ended the kingdom of Himyar. It was a Christian kingdom, which is the kingdom of Aksum, the empire of Aksum, which was based in exactly in Abyssinia, in Ethiopia, and Somalia. No, it's not. It's very close. Have a look at the Red Sea. Have a look at the, have a look at the, the Gulf. It's actually just a few miles away. It's right at the tip where Africa almost joins up with Arabia. And they just had to pop over here and they're in Himyar. Yeah, and they're in Yemen. So that put an end. But it's very important to understand we had this kingdom. Now what's happened in the last decade or two is archaeologists are finding evidence because wherever Dhunawas went, he liked to let people be known that he was there. So we have a number of different... In fact, some of the earliest, earliest Arabic inscriptions anywhere are found in the kingdom of Himyar. It's a fascinating topic, and I can't spend too much longer on it. And everything here, we are peering through the mists of time, and we're not even sure what we're seeing. But let's go into a little bit more, into a little bit more, about what's happening in each of these domains, because I really want to set up the things that I need to talk about, because they're amazing. First of all, you need to realise, let's look at Byzantium. Yeah? Books can be written, books have been written, on the relationship of the Byzantine Empire to its Jews and to Judaism. So I just want to cover one particularly important turning point, or a couple of them this evening. The first one that we would need to be aware of is that in 527, as the kingdom of Himyar is being slaughtered by the Ethiopians, a ruler comes to the throne of Byzantium, is a bit of a game changer as far as Jewish history is concerned, and his name is... Outstanding. Who's saying all these? You're doing very, very well, sir. Of course you are. Justinian. Justinian. Now, Justinian's, of course you are, Justinian's relationship to the Jews uh, was not complex. He didn't like them, and he, well, he was deeply, deeply offended, as were certain other Christians throughout various times in the Middle Ages, very offended by the very existence of Jews and Judaism in his kingdom. We're not sure how close Justinian came to try to enforce conversion on Jews in Byzantium, but the restrictions that he began to place on Jewish communities and on individual Jews became very, very harsh. 
You weren't allowed to build any new synagogues. You were only allowed to repair synagogues if they actually existed in Byzantium. You couldn't build any new ones, and certainly not in new territories conquered by Byzantium. Jews were not allowed to own slaves if they were Christian. Jews were not allowed to testify against a Christian in a trial. But perhaps Justinian's deepest invasions were in fact in the synagogues. Justinian outlawed the reading of the Bible in Hebrew and uniquely attempted to ban the Mishnah. That is to place a ban on the oral Torah. By the way, if Justinian didn't want the Jews to read the Torah in Hebrew in the synagogue, what language do you think he did want them to read it in? Greek. This is an amazing theory, in fact, that I um, could explore another time, is the idea that (coughs) what is the fundamental difference between Byzantium and Latin Christianity and Western Christianity based in Rome in their relationship towards Jews. Actually, before I answer that, let me just talk about one more individual since we're talking about Rome, is that by the time you get to the end of the 6th century, so the time you're at the year 600, you have a figure in Rome called... Yeah, yeah, the Pope. But which Pope? There's only four or five Popes you really need to know about, and this is one of them. This is Gregory. So Gregory is responsible for the first series of theologically embodied promulgations about Jews. And what Gregory realises is that we need Jews. So Jews are not to be forcibly converted. He even sends his bishops for doing that. We can't give them too many privileges. We have to keep them in a more or less degraded and humiliated state but we can't forcibly convert them and we mustn't kill them or drive them off. Why were Jews needed? Because when Otohaish comes back, you need people to say, oh, that's the Messiah, we were wrong. If you get rid of all your Jews, you've got no one to actually acclaim that testament. It's a very, very important foundation of the Roman Catholic Church's view towards Jews. Certainly, right throughout the Middle Ages, they must remain humiliated and degraded, and you can't let them rise too far, but you have to keep them around. Yeah? Now, why? Why this difference? And... Part of the potential theory I'm looking at is this difference between what was a fundamental difference between the Western Roman Church, or as it eventually became, the Western Roman Church, the Holy Roman Empire, and Byzantium in terms of their Christianity, is this. What language, what language were the Byzantines reading the Bible in? Greek. Greek. What language were the Roman Christians reading it in? Latin. They were reading the Vulgate. St. Jerome himself, who translated the Vulgate, went back to the Hebrew to create his translation. The Western Church has no problem with Jews reading the Bible in Hebrew. 
In fact, it's probably even better than Latin. Anyone who wants to learn the Bible properly goes to Jews and learns Hebrew. The Vulgate is Jerome's Latin translation of the Bible, which became the dominant Bible right throughout the Middle Ages and is the basis of most modern English translations. Well, so prayer, yeah? The Catholic prayer. yeah, yeah, but the, when you talk about the Vulgate, you're talking about the Bible. I'm not a Mumchan Catholic liturgy yet. <laughs> this is a fundamental difference. Yeah. Uh, huh. But we need to look back at Babylonia. This is, that's what's going on in the Christian side of this, these three domains. But we need to see what's happening in Babylonia. Babylonia, for a long time now, has been the centre of the Jewish world. In terms of demographics, population. So what is Babylonia at the end of the day? Babylonia is more or less Mesopotamia. Yeah? You've got the Tigris and the Euphrates. And you've got a whole lot of cities and towns in between that are part of this entire fertile cradle of civilization, etc. The jewel in the crown of Babylonian Jewry, and Babylonian Jewry was big. We estimate there must have been at least a million Jews there in Babylonia. But the jewel in the crown would have been, certainly by the time we enter this picture, well... It had been during the Talmudic period, and certainly the early Talmudic period, the jewel in the crown was a town in the right smack. If you look at the map today, it's right smack in the center of Iraq. In fact, it's very, very close to the contemporary city of Fallujah. And that is a town called Nahardea. It had a number of different names. It's also kind of synonymous with Anbar and Firuz Shapur. But we knew it as Nahardea, which literally means river of knowledge. And Nahardea was traditionally the seat of the Exilarch. The expression was that the Shekhinah in Nahardea was the seat of the Shekhinah, of the divine presence in exile. was in Nahardea. And the Exilarch sat there. The Exilarch is like the descendant of King David. He is the remnant of the royal line coming back even as far as Zerubbabel who and that whole family who were part of the exiled royal family at the time of the destruction of the first temple when they were exiled to Babylon. This is a very, very prestigious institution. During the Talmudic period it is a little bit overwhelmed by the academies of study and we're not entirely sure whether it was influential beyond simply being an honorific but that's about to change the position of Resh Galuta the head of the exile is about to change but the head of the exile had traditionally in the early Talmudic period sat in Nahardea but two other towns in Babylon were extremely important and emerged from what was going on at Nahardea, because where the Exilarch was sitting in Nahardea was also regarded during the Talmudic, early Talmudic period as a place of great learning and wisdom. And that is why in around the year 200, with the completion of the Mishnah in the land of Israel, already back in the year 200, 
with the shift demographic and intellectually to Babylon, Nahardea was the first of the great yeshivot, the great Talmudic academies that arose to create the Talmud through their discussions of this new educational technology called the Mishnah. And who was the leader or the head or the, 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 <coughs> the great sage that was running the entire Talmudic academy at Nahardea in the early 3rd century? No, no. Shmuel. He's among the first of, not the prophet Samuel, obviously. He's one of the first of the Amoraim. Now Shmuel was a great sage. So that when another great sage, the greatest sage of his generation, came from the land of Israel, we had studied under the editor of the Mishnah himself, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, and made his way back home to Babylon. Where obviously did he start out? In Nahardea with Shmuel. But it soon became clear to everyone, including the two of them, they remained great friends, but it became very clear to everyone that that single town was not enough to contain both of those giants. Abba Aricha, we know today by the name of Rav. Rav and Shmuel are the two foundational thinkers and sages of the entire Talmud after the Mishnah. We call him Rav. His name is Abba Aricha. So Abba Aricha comes to Nahardea and finds Shmuel teaching there. So Rav goes and creates his own academy. And that academy is about a hundred kilometers to the south in a place that is going to go on and take on a very, very famous name in Jewish history. And that is the town of Surah. Rav created the academy at Surah and very soon thousands of students were flocking to Surah to learn under Rav. So we have Surah and Nahardea, but shortly after the passing of Shmuel, Nahardea was destroyed. This is in the middle of the 200s in a war that I am not going into right now to do with Palmyra and so on. And therefore Rav's great student who wanted to set up his own academy because he was passed over as the head of academy, even though, once again, he would have been well capable of it and felt that his own talents were being underutilized in Surah, Rabbi Yehuda Bar Yechezkel went back north and near Nahardea, a few kilometers from Nahardea, which by now had been destroyed, set up a rival academy and that rival academy 100 kilometers north of Surah became not became known was based at the town that we now know as Pumbedita which literally means the mouth of the Bedita the Bedita is a tributary of the of the river so the mouth of the Bedita so Sura and Pumbedita are literally going to go on over the next few, 
at least 1,000 years, basically, from their founding, not no, at least 800 years, to be like the Oxford in Cambridge, or the Harvard in Yale, of the whole of Babylonian Jewry. It is the heads of those academies, which I'll be talking about in a few minutes, the heads of those academies who had the title of Gaon, and therefore gave their name to the entire period of the Gaonic. Because they were not merely sages responsible for the spiritual direction and welfare of Babylonian Jewry, they were seen as the locus of wisdom and Torah for the whole of the Jewish world. And as I've said many times, if you were living in some Bach in Germany in the 6th century and you put a milchic spoon in a fleshic cup, you would need to write to Babylonia and get your answer and wait three months later to find out whether you could drink your tea. During the 500s, in other words, in the 6th century, the main preoccupation of these sages was really involved in editing the Talmud. In a generation, series of generations throughout the 500s that we call, it's not quite the beginning of the full-blown Gaonic, but it is already after the Talmudic. And it is a short phase in Jewish history that we call Rabbanan Svorai. They are the rabbis that most historians understand did the final editing on the Gemara text. Much of the text of the Gemara is a third-person narrator going, what does this mean? We could ask this question. What about that? Where does that come from? Who said this? All of those little editorial third-person remarks in the Talmud that are said by no one belong to that particular editorial project. Everybody understand? No, they were the final editors. But by the time, by the time it gets towards the end of the 500s, we have a serious problem. Because the situation in Babylonia, this is only in the first century of the Gelnim, but towards the end of that century, the 580s, the 590s, the political situation in the Sassanid Empire itself has become very, very unstable. The transition between two rulers, we won't go into it too much now, Hormiz IV and Khosros II, was a very, very turbulent time that saw a whole uprising happen. Khosros was crowned ruler, but in fact... Had to, was, had to run away from the Sassanid Empire for a year or two until he could reclaim his throne. Where did he run to in that two years? He ran to Byzantium and hid in Byzantium and came back with the Byzantium help to reclaim his throne. <coughs> that resulted in some very, very difficult times for Jewish communities because as we understand it, remember I said at the very beginning, we are peering through the mists of time to work out when things happen and where they happen. But we understand that it would have been probably during that transitional phase, phase and maybe because we were seen as having supported the uprising, 
that Jewish communal, communal life deeply suffered once Chosros II got established on his throne. And Chosros is going to rule for a long time. He's going to rule for about 38 years. He's going to go from around about 591 to 628. And the first years of that rule were seen as very, very difficult for Jewish communities. Or maybe the episode I'm about to talk about happens under the uprising. Or maybe it happens under Hormiz IV. We're not sure. We're trying to piece it together. But what definitely happened was that learning at Surah and Pumbedita was suspended for quite a number of years due to these difficulties. It is also around about this time that we have the famous story of Bustanai. Put your hand up if you know who Bustanai is. A Sorry? A Marxist. A Marxist. <laughs> that, um, that, that could be worked with, but I'm not going to do that now. The Sassanid Empire decides that the Jews are a threat, a political threat. And the way to deal with a political threat like a minority like the Jews that still retains its respect and belief in its nobility is to exterminate that nobility. So there was a program of assassinating every male member with Davidic lineage in Babylonian Jewry. And the houses, I mean, if, believe me, even today, if you find that you're a descendant of King David, you don't make a secret of it. You don't keep that in the cupboard. You walk around and go, oh, I'm Senator King David. Let people know. So everybody knew who they were. So anybody who could have potentially them or their offspring qualified for the position of Exilarch was killed. And then fa the famous legend, of course, we don't know. I mean, once again, it's a legend, but it's a legend that has consequences that were very historical, is that the king has a dream... And in this dream, he's walking through an orchard. The word for orchard is a bustan in Persian. He's walking through the bustan. And he's chopping down trees. And then an old man comes up to him and knocks him on the head with his stick and says, what are you doing? And threatens him. And the king, the emperor, wakes up. And as you can imagine, no one can explain the dream until a wise Jewish rabbi comes in and says, the trees are the members of the house of David that you have been assassinating. And that old man was King David himself. And unless you actually take steps immediately to preserve the household of David, you're going to die and great consequences are going to come. At which point... It was found that the last surviving Resh Galuta had already been assassinated, but his surviving widow was pregnant with his child. So they looked after her. The child was born. It was male, and they named him Bustanai. And Bustanai grew up to become the Resh Galuta, thereby preserving the household of the Resh Galuta, 
We will, huh? Yeah, we will come back to Bustanai in a few moments. But I need to lay the background of that story. But remember, I've told you Bustanai, because then you'll see what happens to Bustanai later on. Everybody follow? What we do know, however, is that the academies, we're not yet at the full-blown Gaonic yet. But what we understand is that the academies at the end of this period of the Rabbanan Svorai, after they had been dealing for a few generations in editing the Talmud, learning was suspended in the great academies under the pressure from the authorities. But by the time we get to around 609, in the early 7th century, conditions have changed sufficiently that we know that at that point, Surah and Pumbadita are up and running. And when I say up and running, more or less in the fashion that they are then going to do for the next three, four hundred years, with various rises and declines, but the basic pattern was established on the restoration of Surah and Pumbadita in the early seventh century. How, before I tell you what would happen there, how do we know? How do we know about all this? How do we know what was going on in Surah and Pumbadita from the 7th century onwards? Because we have several fundamental sources, and it wouldn't be proper if I didn't tell you what those sources mostly are. You don't have to remember them, but it's worth knowing. One is that there's a very famous letter written by one of the last of the great Geonim, Sharira Gaon who wrote the epistle of Sharira Gaon, would you believe it? He wrote that. That's already in the 10th century, where he describes the history of Babylonia, which he has been asked about from elsewhere to describe, and therefore he gives a lot of detail about how things worked in the academies and what the historical circumstances were leading up to the re-establishment of Surah and Pumbadita as the dominant academies of the Gaonic period. Another historian of the 10th century is Natan Habavli, Nathan the Babylonian, Nathan ben Yitzchak the Babylonian, not to be confused with the Amora Nathan the Babylonian, who writes also the history of that period. And for many, for a long, long time, it was really those two documents which gave us our, most of our picture. But, as some of you may know, in the last hundred years, what have we had in Jewish scholarship that we didn't have before about a century and a bit ago. The Cairo Geniza. So in the Cairo Geniza, which by the time it became a Geniza in 900 years ago, was already storing documents that by then were considered old. And the Cairo Geniza also gives us a great insight into facets of the Gaonic period, except that we, it's a little bit of extrapolation for us to assume that how things were at the end of the Gonic period were exactly the same as they were in the beginning of the Gonic period, but it's a reasonable assumption that most of the institutions and the way they were carried out remained the same. Now, what I'm going to talk about for the next few minutes in wider historical terms is no less extraordinary than the kingdom of Himyar, which, if you're sitting there going, ah, Jewish kingdom in Saudi Arabia just prior to Muhammad, yeah, yeah, that may be interesting. But if that's not interesting, the following definitely is. And the first one is too. Chosros the second was a very big king. But it's really under Chosros the second 
that we see this phenomenon that happens between round about 602 and 628, whose impact on history is profound. It's often obscure to a lot of people who don't realise how important this is. But between about 602 and 628, there was a series of conflicts which we know as the Byzantine-Persian Wars of 602 to 628. These lasted 26 years and are very, very complex topic. But basically, by the time you get to the end of those wars, both sides have completely exhausted each other. And that's an important fact to remember. But in the heart of that crisis, from around 614 onwards, Hosros decides to go on a great big expedition of conquest. He perceives a weakness in the Byzantine Empire and he launches himself at the Byzantine to recover territories to recover territories that since ancient times the Persians regarded as theirs. And one of those, of course, is what? The land of Israel. Obviously, the fact that the Persians regard themselves as having a natural claim to the land of Israel causes us no end of ironic amusement given that, from our perspective, the Persians are fairly late in the game, even their first time around. But make no mistake, I'm sure there are people in Iran today who would regard the land of Israel as the natural territory of any greater Persian sphere of influence. And Hosros was certainly um, of that kind of thinking. Hosro launches himself at the Levant. And why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? I mean, who, who came to my battle series that I did at Caulfield School? Anyone? Yeah? I just finished a whole series on famous battles in Jewish history. It was a four-week course. Very interesting. But if... You, I mean, and, and even from other talks we have, you can see how... That you, you can't have a proper respectful empire unless you've got that. But Khosros can't do that alone with the resources of the Persian Empire. He needs to draw on various minorities and their armies and their combined forces to help him. One of which was a vast collection of Jews who thought that helping the Persians to retake the land of Israel would be a good idea for the Jews. And they got together an army and they fought with Hosros in return for being given, wait for it, Jerusalem. Big wow. And they fought with Hosros and they won. And from 614, the land of Israel changes hands 
and becomes part of Persia who capture the whole of the Levant. They capture massive parts of the Byzantine holdings in, in this part of the world, including complete control of the land of Israel. And they say to the Jews, Jerusalem is yours. So from 614, there was an independent Jewish state in Jerusalem. The expectation was that Chosros would go on to actually give the Jewish people the whole of the land of Israel. But certainly, we were very happy to take Jerusalem as a city-state. Yeah? It's an excellent question because we have different reports. How many Jews in the army that took it or how many Jews were living in Jerusalem at the time? Under the Byzantines, Jewish life in Jerusalem was extremely restricted. I don't know if it was as difficult as it had been under some periods in Roman times. We were only allowed into Jerusalem one day a year and that was on Tisha B'Av so we could mourn for the, for the temple. There were Jews living in Jerusalem but uh, we besieged we it and we took it. Several thousands at least in terms of who was living there. The army would have been several tens of thousands. The leader of that army, the leader of that Jewish army that took Jerusalem and created a Jewish state was... Oh, finally, I've got a reason for being here. <laughs> Nehemiah ben Chushiel. Now, Nehemiah ben Chushiel was not Herzl. Herzl. For him, it wasn't just about a Jewish state or a Jewish homeland, although there was that. Very soon after they captured it, like previous attempts, they decided that it would be a very good idea to start rebuilding the temple. And so they start even selecting who's going to be working as priests, how they exactly they're going to rebuild and dedicate the temple. This was it. Nehemiah ben Chushiel is a major figure in Jewish messianism. Many allusions in Midrash of the time point to a widespread belief that he was the Messiah. And among those generations that lay claim to have serious claim to be the messianic age, that this, look, everything that's supposed to happen is happening, that generation was certainly one of them. He was also assisted by another very, very significant and important Jew of the period. Also, we should know more about this individual because he's fascinating. Benjamin of Tiberias. And there you go. There's your Galil, because you said there are Jews in the Galil. So Benjamin of Tiberias, who was not a soldier and not a rabbi, he was a massive gvir, a very, very wealthy benefactor, extremely wealthy man, a businessman, who basically threw his financial backing to the whole project, 
They weren't waiting around. They were making these plans to rebuild the temple within the first few weeks. We know this because their plans were already deeply developed a few months later when there was an enormous Christian uprising against this new Jewish control. And the Jewish forces who were controlling Jerusalem put down that Christian uprising. And I don't think the UN would have been happy with the way they did it. (laughs) It was pretty merciless. Thousands of Christians died. There are there are various accounts. Some Christian historians want to exaggerate the numbers, but certainly it wasn't pretty. That then caused tremendous pressure to be brought to bear on the Persian rulers from the Christian communities of Mesopotamia and eventually a lot of political back and forth But within three years, by 617, the Persians had decided to restore Jerusalem to its Christian communities. And that obviously meant that there was a slaughter of Jews. A merciless slaughter of Jews and several thousands and so on. Basically, the Christians controlled it. The... (laughs) <clears throat> the Persian, the Byzantine Empire, Heraclius eventually took back, got well, got back the Levant. He got it back because in 628, I'm not going into the history of the end of the Sassanid Empire, but it's just so fascinating you can't not look at it. And that is that in 628, Khosros II, who'd already been king, as I said, for nearly 40 years, massive, nearly 30 years, no, nearly 40 years. Um, was rebelled against by one of his sons and not his favourite son either (laughs) who not only killed called Kavad Kavad II who not only killed all his brothers but he thought yeah what the heck and killed his old man as well and it wasn't until his sisters came and said what have you done that he suddenly felt an incredible remorse at having killed all his brothers and dad, as you do. And therefore, he himself didn't last very long, died in a plague a few months later, but not before he had finished a treaty of reconciliation with the Byzantines that basically gave back the Byzantines all of the lands that the Persians had conquered, including the land of Israel. What one of the great ironies of history, one of the great ironies of history, that on the eve of the events that are going to change this whole world, as a result of those wars, that those wars actually got reconciled. The Byzantines and the Sassanids made peace literally on the eve of the rise of Islam. And we know that one of the reasons behind the incredible expansion of Islam, and so quickly, is that 
this entire world had become exhausted and depleted by all of the wars that had been happening between these two empires. Yeah? But the rise of Islam is still a phenomenal thing. And we need just to talk about it for a moment because, you know, Muhammad has his revelations in around 610, followed over the next few years, you know, by the Hajira and then the first expansions. And then Muhammad dies in 630. He's succeeded by Abu Bakr. We don't need to go into the whole Rashidun Caliphate and what happened after that, but suffice it to say that by the middle of the century... Islam, certainly by the time, you know, you get to the end of Omar, Islam had not only, of course, conquered Arabia, that had already done most of that under Muhammad himself, but had extended here. Persia is completely Islamic by 651. The entire Sassanid Empire is now a memory. It is gone. It is ended Obviously, Islam as well takes the whole Levant. They conquer the land of Israel off Heraclius, by the way, in around 632. They build in Jerusalem a shrine. That shrine is eventually going to be superseded by the end of the century by the Dome of the Rock. And they even, towards the end of the century... Well, by the middle of the century, they basically also conquered all of the Byzantine holdings in North Africa. And certainly by the end of the 600s, they've basically gone as far as Morocco. All of North Africa. That means that the Byzantine Empire has shrunk considerably. But it's still hanging on. It's still got Turkey at this point. And it's still got Greece and it's still got some, uh, some holdings in the Mediterranean. One of the amazing stories in Jewish history is what happened with the Jewish community when Babylonia fell to Islam. And what is amazing about this is because there are actually several versions of this and two of these versions are Islamic. We have a Sunni version of the story I'm going to tell you and a Shia version of the story I'm going to tell you and they are both about a major event in Jewish history. Because when the Caliph comes into Babylon and of course for the Sunnis it's going to be Omar and for the Shia it's going to be Ali but when he comes and they destroy the Sassanid Empire, 90,000 Jews go out to greet him. And the, who is brought before the Caliph? The Resh Galuta. And who is the Resh Galuta by this time? In his 50s? Bustanai. When we left Bustanai, he was a baby, remember? 
Now he's the Resh Galuta. You're shaking your head because it's unbelievable. You're shaking your head because you think I've said something wrong. Oh, I said that. Okay, sorry. I thought you were saying. Yeah, Resh Head Galuta, the exile. So Omar slash Ali takes Pustanai and says. It means we're not sure. We have two versions of this story. One is it's Omar and one is it's Ali. That's what I'm saying. I'm not going to decide between those two tonight. There's a lot of research going on. We're not sure. It's not the same person. Sorry? It's not the same person. Who, Omar and Ali? No, they're not the same. No, they're not parallel. No, 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 no. No, Ali is a few years later. It's a difference maybe of around eight years. He takes Bustanai. And he marries him off to the last remaining princess of the Sassanid Empire, who we assume would have been Khosrow's daughter. Bearing in mind that Khosrow died, was killed by his son in 628, and for the next 20 years, it's just incredible turmoil happening in the Sassanid Empire before they're conquered by Islam. The whole kingdom had basically, the whole empire basically collapsed into internecine fighting and they had like six different rulers over the course of, you know, several short years. So it's a very, but, but we assume probably that she was a daughter of Khosros and he married the two together. And they had children and those children had children all the way down and, you know, and some of those children over the succeeding generations became Resh Galuta. Now, anyone, can anyone perceive a problem there? She wasn't Jewish. And this issue is dealt with in later Gaonic literature, big discussions on whether or not the descendants of Bustanai were in fact Jewish. What was their halakhic status? And the Gaonim at the, in the 10th century are having to decide, you know what? Given what we know about this guy Bustanai, it's inconceivable that he would not have had her converted to Judaism. But this Persian princess, we don't know, so they said she probably did. And it's very interesting because there's people running around the world today with Davidic lineage. If you see Bustanai there, then you know that uh, there's, there might be an issue. It would appear that Bustanai had other wives, obviously, because probably he wouldn't have got to that point without having already been married. And so maybe there are other descendants of Bustanai who were kosher, but there's, just, there's a unique line that is traced by the Gelnim themselves of those Jews descended from that particular Shidduch. And it's very, very interesting that that was something that even three, four hundred years later was still being talked about. The thing is, the descendants probably kept Jewish law. And so by... Well, yeah, they would have kept Jewish law, and plenty of people keep Jewish law, but you're still going to have a proper Jewish status. Yeah. Is that story in the Quran? No, 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 no. no. It, 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 I'm not even sure if it's in the Hadith. It, it's not in the Quran, but it's in, uh, it's in uh, Islamic historiography. I, I, I'll, I'll, I could look up the source if you want. That's actually quite interesting where it is. Now, I want to just talk in the last few minutes because I'm really setting it up for what we're going to talk about next week. So by the time... We get, um, and then this is important because what happens with Bustanai and what happens with the Islamic conquest is that the position of Resh Galuta takes on a kind of a different sort of form and a much more actively engaged form.
It's no longer simply an honorific. Throughout the Islamic period of the Gilni, which is most of it, and remember, that means because, <laughs> because of course, the Umayyad Caliphate itself was based in Damascus, we now find ourselves really at the heart of all of the power of this empire. And they have a Jewish minority that has been conquered within all of these lands. And someone's got to be responsible for governing those minorities and making sure that they are behaving themselves in relation to their Islamic overlords. Of course, the famous... Law, you know, covenant of, uh, of, 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 of Uthman and, and Omar, which defined that the role of Christians and Jews as being people of the book but not Islamic is that we were allowed existence, somewhat curtailed in privileges, and we had to pay a tax for the privilege of that. But if we paid the tax and we behaved ourselves and we followed our own religion, we were not to be molested. Yeah. There was a Christian equivalent of that as well. So someone has to be responsible for that and someone has to be a figurehead that can be brought before the caliph or that can make representations to the caliph on behalf of the Jewish world and therefore the Rej Galuta took on a very, very big and serious political role throughout the Gaonic period. Now the family of the Exilarch were going to be very politically influential. And what we find now, what we're going to look at next week, and it's going to be a theme that's been going on, is that, of course, now within this Jewish world, you have competing centres of power. One which was political, vested in the Resh Galuta, and the other, spiritual and religious, vested in the Geonim. That's why it's no surprise that the system that eventually got set up is that no one could be elected Gaon of either Sura and Pumbadita without the consent and approval of the Resh Galuta. And no one could be appointed Resh Galuta without the consent and approval of the Gaonim. This was, this was a very, very unique balance of powers within the Jewish world in Babylonia. As you can well imagine, it would need to be. There needed to be this kind of regulated, institutionalized life and everybody knew their place and what was happening. I want to talk in the last five minutes just about the, uh, what was happening at the academies themselves so that we can use that as a stepping stone for next week. And I've said this before and I'll say it again that it's a little bit like being born in the slums in Brazil. How do you get out of the slums in Brazil? What do you have to be able to do? Play soccer. Play football. That is your one ticket that can get you from absolute deprived deprivation and poverty. But if you're skilled, you can climb up to be world famous and fabulously wealthy. It is a road out of the slums, out of obscurity. In Babylonian Jewry, especially under Islamic rule, where opportunities, economic opportunities, were not so great and political opportunities were not great, what was one way in which you could rise from obscurity to become great? 
knowledge and particularly Torah. So thousands of boys would come to study at the academies of Surah and Pumbadita, but only the greatest of the greatest rose to the top ranks. At any one time, the Gaon would sit in front of about 70 full-time students. And there were various times throughout the year called the Yarche Kala in the months of Adar and Elul where tens of thousands of part-time students and other wannabe intellectuals would come in and out of Surah and Pumdita to learn the lessons that had been studied over the last six months in a very, very concentrated period of time. But we understand now that the numbers of full-time academics there was not necessarily that large. But certainly at any one time, the Gaon sat with 70 of the top students of the academy in seven rows of 10. If you sat in the first row, you had the title of Aluf. And if your uncle was an Aluf at Surah 50 years ago, you were still talking about it. To get in the first row was regarded as phenomenal achievement. So it's important to understand that if you go and you become eventually, and then you've got to go, then there were various positions. There was an Aluf, and then one of the Alufim would, would, would rise to become the uh, Avbedin, and then from the Avbedin you would go to the Gan Gaon, and then from there you would become, eventually you become the Gaon of Surah or the Gaon of Pumbadita. And if you were at that level, it meant that you were effectively one of the two greatest sages of the generation. What the Gaonim were doing is very important to understand. Put up your hand if you've ever looked at a page of Talmud. Even in English. So you'll know that the Talmud is not given as an easy read. And it's not something that easily arrives at decisions. But I can walk around all day with the whole Talmud in my head or on my back. But it doesn't help me know what to do. And even then, even if, I mean, bearing in mind that the Talmud is massive, it wasn't even accessible out, barely accessible outside Babylonia. Might have been accessible as far as Palestine, but it wasn't really accessible. Jews setting up communities, Jews wanting answers as to how they should live. And I know some of you are sitting there going, oh, well, if I'd lived then, I wouldn't have asked any questions. What have I got to ask? Think how many times you've had to ask a rabbi something or ask a friend or a family member something about Judaism that you didn't know. And if you were living outside Babylonia in that age, no one would know the answer. The Geonim are responsible for establishing... If the Talmud is about what Judaism should look like in one long discussion, the Geonim begin the process of what it does look like and what Jewish communities should be doing and what individuals should be doing and how we might, by the end of this period, work towards creating a code that we could actually extract from the Talmud. But that's hundreds of years of the Gaonic period to work towards the point of understanding the practical application of the Talmud to create these institutions. When do you think the first Siddur, anybody, anybody knows what a Siddur is? 
Do you think there were Sidurim in the second temple? There weren't even Sidurim in the Talmudic period. The Sidur is a product of the Gaonic period. The Haggadah. All the, the, the Jewish calendar. Hebrew grammar. All of these things are product of the Gaonic period. I wanted to lay down some very, very basic understanding of this period of 500 to 700. I want us to realize that there is a lot going on. And I do have some, uh, I do have some notes. Uh, just let me look at them. I just want to make sure that I think... I'm pretty sure that they, I, I spoke mostly to this kind of outline that is here. So it will mention the major things. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep, that's good. That's good. All right. Oh, oh. I left out one major thing, so please give me one more minute to tell you something, because I wanted to talk about this, and I didn't. Remember earlier in the talk, just bear with me, it won't be a minute. Bear, you remember earlier in the talk, I spoke about how Justinian had basically invaded the synagogue service itself, forbade reading the Torah in Hebrew, forbade the use of the Mishnah. He interfered in Judaism a lot, or he tried to, now, it's basically understood, according to some historians, that it's as a result of Justinian's invasions in the synagogue that gave rise to a new form of literature of that century, of the 600s, which is what we know as the concept of piyut. Piyut are specific Hebrew liturgical poems. And the greatest exponent, I mean, there are, now from here on, from 600 on, there are going to be P.O.T.M. written right throughout the Middle Ages. Many of you would be familiar with some of them said on different occasions. But the greatest exponent of the concept of P.O.T. that really towers over everyone is a figure called Elazar Ben Kalir. And the Lazar ben Kalir, we understand, really introduces very, very dense and complex poetry into the Sidur with a lot of allusions to Hebrew and to Mishnah to compensate, to compensate for the interferences that Justinian was making because El Lazar ben Kalir, although many people think, oh, sounds like he's from Baghdad. In fact, El Lazar ben Kalir was living in Byzantium. Probably, just let people absorb that for a second. Living in Byzantium, probably in Italy. And therefore the whole concept of Piut is going to take off once again. Another product of the Gonic period, but in direct result of these kinds of amazing historical circumstances. Guys, thank you for listening to that. Thank you for listening. To find out more about David Solomon's books, recordings and classes, or to support his work and teachings for just a few dollars a month, visit davidsolomon.online.